my name is Gina Martini. I'm the Chief Scientist for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Today I'm joined with my colleague, Sarah Cahill, who is the Chief Pharmaceutical Officer's Clinical Research Fellow. Today we're delighted to be joined by Warwick Smith, who is Director General of the British Generics Manufacturing Association. Good morning, Warwick. Good morning. Warwick has kindly come in today to tell us a bit more about the British Generic Manufacturing Association. Warwick, can you give us a bit more idea of your role at BGMA and also what BGMA actually does? So as you say, Gina, I'm the Director General, which means I am responsible to the members for all operations of the association. We have 33 members and and we represent almost 90% of the UK generics market. I guess we have an external role and an internal role. Externally, we are the spokespeople and advocates for the generic and biosimilars manufacturers. And internally, we advise our members on how best to plan their operations, basically to deal with regulation, procurement, the NHS government, and so on. And that can range from advising them and government on supply chains through to giving our position on the free trade agreements, which are currently being negotiated, which will obviously impact on the pharmaceutical industry across the piece. A very important role. I'll hand over to uh, Sarah. Morning, Mark. There's been many concerns about the robustness of the medicine supply chains in the UK, and there's been reports of stockouts in pharmacies. Can you pass any comment and perspectives on these concerns? Sure. I I think I, I should begin, Sarah, by saying that in the UK, we have both the lowest priced generic medicines in Europe and also one of the most secure supply of medicines. If you look at mainland Europe, most countries have more shortages than we do here. Now, I certainly don't want to in any way underplay the importance of supply um, and shortages are obviously something that none of us need. What we see in the UK is because our prices are flexible and set by supply and demand, if there are global shortages of medicines, prices here can go up. And I know sometimes that's a bit of a pain, particularly for community pharmacists, but it does allow the UK to make sure it gets more of its fair share of products that are short across the world. And then the research shows that the price goes back. So that supply and demand commodity model ensures greatest supply. I think if you look at what causes shortages, it tends generally to go back down the um, upstream supply chain. So looking at supplies of active pharmaceutical ingredient, you know, which our manufacturers use to make the finished form product. And I think there are things that can be done, and we've been talking to government about this for some months now, to to make the current long and complex supply chains more resilient than they are. Sometimes people assume all generics come from India because India is is clearly a, a, a good source of medicines. But we think about 20 or 25% of generic medicines used in the UK or manufactured in the UK. And there's then probably another 45, 50% manufactured in the European Union, leaving the, you know, the remaining third manufactured mainly, but not wholly in India. Where we would have greatest concern is if you look at the sources of active pharmaceutical ingredient, which as I say, we, we use to manufacture the medicine, 
maybe 55% of that comes out of India. And if you look at the raw materials that the API manufacturers use, they predominantly come out of China. So that the pressure that we get in terms of supply chains creaking is really in that upstream supply of raw materials and API. Just to pass comments on that, Warwick, and I, when I used to work in the industry, you know, a lot of the outsourcing happened many, many years ago, long before any concerns about a pandemic ever materialised. So, you know, it's been a good example of how, you know, the UK supply chains be robust. And, and thank you for your role in helping pharmacies maintain supply chains. I suppose my next question is linked to that in a way. Did you ever think pharma companies would work in such a collaborative way in trying to you know, develop a response to the COVID-19 pandemic? I hoped they would. I thought they probably would. I'm delighted that they did. Um, it's worthwhile saying here, you know, I think there was a real collaborative effort to ensure that patients received their medicines during, you know, continuing during the, the pandemic. Most people listening to this will know. But the medicines used for patients in intensive care on um, mechanical ventilation are all generics. Normally, there are very few patients, as we know, receiving mechanical ventilation. Therefore, the volumes of medicines needed, and the majority are predominantly for those purposes, certainly in the presentations used in hospitals, that means there are very few suppliers with small volumes, which actually makes the market less flexible than it might otherwise be. And, and the demands were, were, were huge. I mean, we, we have one member with one product who sold in two weeks, 12 months normal supply. And they only manufacture one batch a year. So the ability that companies were able to, to step up and shift their production, stop manufacturing some products, you know, ma manufacture others, I, I think puts great credit on the industry. But I'd also like to give an enormous vote of thanks to clinicians and administrators in the NHS this was a collaborative effort. The team that NHS England put together to source medicines when they weren't obviously readily available, the advice given by the Royal Colleges, the way in which clinicians in hospitals responded to that advice. This was a truly collaborative effort and it would be wrong to single out one particular part of the healthcare system. Everybody pulled together. I don't want to give the impression that it was perfect, when you're moving at the pace that everybody was facing the challenges that we all were, there will have been mistakes. Um, we're now tidying up some of those. But the fact that between all of the players, we were able to get 10 times the normal quantities of low volume medicines to patients in a very short period of time. Enormous credit to everybody concerned. Oh, absolutely, Warwick. Those are amazing statistics, amazing numbers. Did I hear that correctly? That one manufacturer only made one batch per year and it had something like a year's supply. It was a year's supply sold in two weeks. Oh, my word. So our challenge now, Gino, unsurprisingly, is to backfill the API that we've used to yeah. ramp up manufacture in the way that we did. Uh, and one of the reasons we were able to keep going is that manufacturers typically hold maybe six months supply of API. It's very stable, has a long shelf life. You can trade it so that there's no reason not to stock it. But of course, India shut down. We've been running on those supplies that we hold, which we now have to fill. 
And that that's probably six months' work to build back up those supplies. People don't really understand, do they, how long it actually takes to make a drug product. They confuse it with, say, a can of food, for example, and not be little in the food industry. But the long lead times within the industry are, are huge, aren't they, Warwick? Absolutely. And, and it's, it's one of you know the tensions that we face. If a generic company is thinking of manufacturing a product, it will be starting to take decisions on how it does that almost as soon as the originator product is launched. Mm -hmm. Right through to when we're on the market to change production schedules is typically six months minimum. The planning required is so sophisticated. And I'm glad to hear as well that, you know, you're reviewing. It wasn't perfect. There are people looking at what could be improved and lessons learned. I'm a great believer in in continuous improvement. And, of course, pharmacists have a role to play as well because they, you know, they're also gatekeepers. You know, they're people who know what the issues are of supply chains in and around the UK because all pharmacies are, are different. Absolutely. Because in my volunteering as well recently, I've seen how stocks can flutter if, if, and, and how the pharmacists can play an active role. Yeah, I, I think one of the things, Gino, that may, maybe nobody spotted until it was a little late was a run on OTC products in pharmacies. So, you know, we were all focused on medicines for ITU and maybe nobody noticed that there was going to be a run on paracetamol. And of course, India closed its borders to the export of paracetamol and indeed for the API for paracetamol until quite late on. So there were issues there. And also I'm aware that countries across Europe started to stockpile what they thought might be potential treatments for yeah. COVID-19. Um, you know, hydroxychloroquine was one that yeah. showed not to be effective. But that did create difficulties, for example, with lupus patients accessing hydroxychloroquine because it had somehow disappeared from the market, even though both our members and the Department of Health took great care not to take supplies that were intended for business as usual. And I think to compound that a little bit as well, all the various clinical trials are ongoing kind of sucked up supplies as well. I, I do think with hydroxychloroquine, they are looking at it again from prophylaxis point of view. But the whole point of this, Warwick, I found is that it's so dynamic, wasn't it? I mean, yes. ibuprofen you could use, then you couldn't yep. use. And it was just so dynamic. It is really difficult to keep tabs on it also. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's it's nothing new to say, Gina, you know, because it's, it's been said on the news. But this is a new virus. Nobody knew anything about it. I mean, at, at one stage... I'm sure they wouldn't mind me saying this. I had a call from the NHS saying, look, if your members say we're asking for the wrong drugs, we're not. COVID-19 patients don't present as everybody thought they would. So it, it, it has been a process of continuously learning more about the virus, how patients present. And, and frankly, you know, I think fewer needing mechanical ventilation than the early estimates suggested. Yeah, it's that heterogeneous response uh, to, to the virus, which actually brings me on to my next question. And, and also the raison d'etre for all these podcasts, because as people know, I'm an industrial pharmacist by training. And clearly this virus, there's very little we can do other than supportive care. So, of course, uh, I was very keen to engage with industry in these podcasts because ultimately a cure or a treatment will come from industry. And obviously just recently, and obviously, because you represent the British Genetics Manufacturing Association, it's really quite exciting that a generic drug like dexamethasone uh, has created such a stir of excitement and that maybe repurposing all the generic drugs might provide a, a quicker cure, a quicker treatment option. That must fill you with some excitement, Warwick. It did. I'm bound to say it wasn't a shock. 
Um, we are great advocates generally of repurposing generics and there are in typical primary care settings there are there are some commercial and regulatory barriers to doing that which we're working on with NHS England to try and bring down because there is a hell of a lot of promise in repurposing you know older medicines and I think this is the point about dexamethasone for COVID-19 treatment the manufacturing is already in place the safety profile is already there the distribution chains are already there so it's very easy to to switch on and again all credit to the department of health that before they had the results of the clinical trial and by the way it comes to a point that you made earlier about the industry working together putting robust clinical trials in place for a generic just shows how this is a you know single holistic environment in in which we work but also all credit to the department of health that before the results of that clinical trial were out they had already bought significant quantities of dexamethasone now you know if it hadn't worked to paraphrase the secretary of state it would have been the best waste of money ever because we need that sort of planning to move as as quickly as as we can i'm sure that in the fullness of time we will end up with one or more vaccines my feeling is in the the short term we are going to have a number of treatments and prophylaxis measures that will need to be used in combination and again you know i think that comes down to the point you've made about how the the whole network the whole environment needs to cooperate and work together and i must give a shout out to malcolm quayley who i interacted with particularly about uh, repurposing medicines and also his strong support and the recovery trial obviously a massive effort and they do deserve uh, a lot of acknowledgement and credit Malcolm has been a, a, a great supporter of repurposing generally. Yeah. So let's just keep keep our eyes uh, peeled and, and look at those repurposing uh, generics because I think they do provide um, certainly the short term uh, solution while we find a vaccine. Uh, Sarah, I hand over to you now. Um, so you kind of touched on it earlier, but can you give our listeners an idea of how the generics industry is helping both the NHS and the government at the moment and in general? Sarah, not not to repeat the, the the points that I made about the cooperation and working together, but that there's a lot behind the scenes where we and the government will discuss what might work mm-hmm. in terms of policies, procurement, you know, comparing notes on where there are issues with supply and, and working behind the scenes to deal with with those. Again, cooperation, absolutely fascinating the way in which at one stage we saw difficulties with moving product between states in India. We took that to the government and through the British High Commission and consulates in India, they were able to talk to government and local regional government um, officials to ensure that there were through passage for trucks carrying medicines. So that, that sort of um, collaborative way of working will continue to go forward. We're also making our own proposals to the government on how the supply chain can be made more resilient going forward. We touched on earlier, if you like, is the the eastward drift of medicines manufacturing from Western Europe to Central Europe to India to China. A lot of that was 
due to government policy initially on, on intellectual property, where you could develop a generic in those countries during the patent term, but you couldn't do that in the UK and some Western European countries. Then the total downward pressure on price pushes manufacturers to cut their costs. And that, again, you know, leads to manufacturing in lower cost economies. And, and frankly, things like only having one API supplier on your license because it costs you money to have more than one. So we are putting forward a package of measures to government around procurement, general policy towards medicines, around pricing, all of those things that will allow the supply chain, you know, and these are long and complex supply chains, to become more resilient. Actually, Warwick, so that's a really interesting point you made. I want to just link it to back what you said before, about 25% of generics are made in the UK for UK use. Yeah. And predominantly most of it was outside. And of course, the API, the active pharmaceutical degree, the drug substance effectively, as we now know, yeah. is made predominantly outside India and China. But do you think, because of what's happened with the pandemic, that we'd see more inward investment, more generic manufacturing occurring back in the UK, both from an API point of view and secondary, i.e. the formulation, the tablet and the capsule development. What's your view? So I think there may be a case for some limited additional manufacturing in the UK. Um, I tend, frankly, to focus more on the API than the, the finished dosage form product, because I think that's where the supply chain is weaker. I, I think we need to be a little careful. If we concentrate manufacturing and supply anywhere in the world, we weaken resilience. So if we sourced all of our medicines from the UK and there was some sort of crisis in the UK predominantly or alone, that wouldn't help. What, what we need is diversity and flexibility. So, you know, support, if we are putting in a new production line, a little bit of government support so that we could have change tools as part of that so we could easily and quickly change a manufacturing line to produce another presentation or a different product or even a different type of product. That sort of investment to give flexibility to respond to crises we think would be a very good idea. Okay, so some form of kind of not reinvestment is you think would be a good idea, but not all your eggs in one basket. Absolutely. And, you know, some of the things you can do are comparatively simple. Actually having a bit more stock in the supply chain to give yeah. you time to respond. You know, the, the Carter reforms, you might recall, urged a reduction in stocks held by hospitals. You know, just in time might work for the motor industry. It probably doesn't work for medicines. So what you're saying is just in time, it, nice in theory, but when, it, when there's a pandemic, it doesn't really work. Yeah, and, and I, I think, you know, we need an approach that, that says we, we've got some inbuilt resilience by removing the issues which actually force the eastward drift and, in effect, force manufacturers to reduce costs to the point that we're not as resilient as we might be, and that can apply to all. We then need to see, you know, some additional stocks held in the UK. The old National Medicines Buffer Stock System was pretty flawed but a better version of that to ensure we have more stocks available maybe some for, for those medicines where in a crisis there are always going to be difficulties mm -hmm. some reserve stocks held outside of the normal supply chain and all of that coming together to buy time to use flexible manufacturing built up in the uk 
that sort of strategic approach we feel is what is necessary that there's no single lever to pull here it needs to be holistic joined up strategic sir um so can you explain to our listeners about the life sciences recovery roadmap um, which was released earlier in june sure so th- this is um a, the outcome of one of those bits of collaboration the industry has weekly meetings with the government at a political level to review where we are in one of those meetings the issue of how does industry recover in very many ways from what has happened during the pandemic came up and given that obviously the government is working 24/7 and flat out ministers asked the industry to come together to provide a roadmap i think what is interesting is that the roadmap that we delivered after about 4 weeks so i think is fairly fast piece of work to the government was contributed to by all parts of the industry the originator research based companies were there the generic companies were there the biologic manufacturers were there the appliance manufacturers were there the otc guys were there and so on and again my colleague elliot dunster at the abpi held the pen and enormous credit to elliot that he managed to produce a cohesive report including the views of all those parts of the industry that normally compete ferociously and you know the government has committed to to picking up that road map and going forward i'm sure what will happen now is that the individual sectors in the life sciences industry will pick up those parts of the road map which are of most relevance to them and work with government so certainly as is probably apparent we've been doing a lot of thinking and working on supply chain resilience and and others will pick up other parts of that road map and Boric, on behalf of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, we'd like to thank you for a most informative interview and podcast. Thank you so much. That's a pleasure. Thank you very much.